What's the solution to the opioid crisis? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Ben Perrin. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Ben Perrin. Ben teaches and researches in the areas of criminal law and international law. He joined the University of British Columbia in 2007 and is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. He previously served as a law clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada and was the lead justice and public safety advisor to Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper from 2012 to 2013. His recent book, Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis, is a powerful look at Canada's opioid crisis and a national call to action. It will inform a lot of our discussion today. It was released on March 31st, 2020, so pretty recent. Make sure you guys get your copy. We'll be putting up a link to where you can purchase the book on our podcast's website. In each episode, Ben, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation and answers lead us. Our question today is, what's the solution to the opioid crisis? But let's do some stage setting, work our way to that final answer first. Let's talk about what the opioid crisis is in your words. Some people just read some headlines and concluded that, you know, people are addicted to opioids and maybe overdosing and left it at that. People think, of course, drugs are bad. That's always a conclusion. And some people knew that there's some tainted drugs out there, especially with the fentanyl thing. But let's hear it from you. What is the opioid crisis? How did it ramp up? So we began to see uh, increasing uh, death deaths by overdose reported in various parts across Canada. I, I live in Vancouver right now, which has really been the Canadian epicenter of the uh, current opioid crisis. And British Columbia declared a public health emergency four years ago. It was on April 16th, um, uh, four years ago. And so this was in a, in a situation where the number of deaths began to accumulate to such a degree that they eclipsed, if you can believe it, all deaths of suicide, homicide, and car accidents combined. In other words, death by illicit drug overdoses in British Columbia uh, became the leading cause of unnatural deaths in the province. So that's absolutely staggering. Um, people will be familiar with the statistics um, uh, nationally, or at least kind of got a sense of them. We have over 15,000 people died between 2016, when that public health emergency was declared, and uh, 2019. That's 15,000 Canadians dead. Um, this is happening right across Canada. And the most immediate cause of the opioid crisis in Canada, if you want to sort of pin it on on one um, proximate cause, and then we work back from there, it is fentanyl. So fentanyl is a synthetic opioid drug, which has um, was actually created in 1959, if you can believe it. It's not a new drug. That surprised me when I got into the research. It was originally created um, by a, a Belgian um, uh, who created it to help people who are dying. Uh, it's a palliative care drug. It was a powerful, potent pain reliever that is uh, 30 to 50 times um, more potent than uh, other opioids, like uh, naturally occurring opioids like heroin, and 100 times more uh, potent than morphine. So you can imagine for people who are in um, in, in pain, excruciating pain, um, having a, a potent uh, painkiller and sedative is, in a medical context is really, really critical. And fentanyl is used widely in, um, in hospitals, in veterinary care. Uh, my um, uh, I had a, a child who went through uh, surgery, and I asked afterwards, "What did you, what did you give him?" And it was fentanyl, and um, I had to go through a medical procedure earlier this year. And I asked them, um, "What, what were they going to give me?" And 
same thing. It was a combination of fentanyl and something else. So many, most Canadians have actually, um, uh, if they've had any kind of medical procedure in the last decade, have actually consumed fentanyl. Um, and it's okay when it's given in a, um, a properly dosed, we know how much is in there, and it's um, given under su- supervision. That, that, is, uh, that makes it quite safe. What makes fentanyl a killer and dangerous is that it has been um, contaminated into every street drug that we have and has been discovered in everything from uh, you know, cocaine to meth to mixed in with, with uh, heroin. Uh, and everything in between. The only drug that has not been found to have actually had any contamination with uh, fentanyl, despite some media reports, is is cannabis. So we're in a situation where Canada has what we consider to be a poisoned or toxic drug supply. Um, the reason the way we call it that is that, um, by and large, there is absolutely no quality control. Illicit drugs in Canada are manufactured by the criminal underworld. And because fentanyl is so potent, it just takes a few basically grains of sand to be the difference between a dose which would um, cause someone to feel those feelings of pain relief and, and um, no longer worrying about all the, the stress and trauma in their life to then actually falling asleep and stopping to breathe and dying, which is how people die of a fentanyl overdose. So the proportion of um, people who had fentanyl in their bloodstream who were dying of drug overdoses present day, almost uh, 90% of people who overdosed uh, in Canada had uh, fentanyl in their in their system. So if we want to start from that point, that's the, the starting point in Canada. In the United States, there's also a opioid crisis, which actually began sooner. And it began um, a large part with overprescription of, of opioids, uh, pharmaceutical opioids. Uh, and then that's the sort of first wave. And the second wave has been similarly with Canada, uh, fentanyl hitting the, the street drug market. So so that's the um, the place where most people um, sort of begin the conversation about this. But I hopefully we'll get to the end of this conversation um, and, and f- find that blaming this on one particular substance is actually completely missing the point. And it's myopic. And um, we got to start from there, but it is not the end point. Right. And when we will get to that. And, and before we do, I just wanted to, can you quickly bridge the gap for us between someone getting like an opioid prescribed to them and then a, a week later, a few months later, whatever it is, then going to street drugs and purchasing them illegally, if you will. And then th- all of a sudden they're, they're, they're is consuming drugs that are tainted by fentanyl because you know we've often heard and you did mention it about especially in the states where there's an overprescription problem down there but then it's hard at least i find to jump right from being prescribed drugs by a doctor to the logic of okay now this person's buying street drugs that are tainted with fentanyl so how does that usually happen is it is this when people like their prescriptions over that they are still addicted or reliant on the substance can you paint that picture of of that sort of sort of person or scenario that actually gets someone to that point where they're buying street drugs that are tainted with with fentanyl if it started with over prescription well the good thing is that we we actually have really good data on a lot of this now and and that's really kind of the approach that i take in my in my book overdoses we need to respond to this public health emergency using the best available public health data. I mean, we're in the context of, of another public health emergency right now. We actually have two simultaneous uh, public health emergencies, the opioid crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. And you can see, um, you know, politicians are marshalling the best available um, decisions, um, at least professing to based on, on science and medicine. And whenever they deviate from that even a little bit, the public outcry is, is, is shrill and rightly so. We don't see that being done with the opioid crisis. So I, I think it is good to look at the data. Um, most people who overdose um, and, and die fatally from it, those individuals are, are uh, longer term drug users. 
uh, less than 10% of people who die of an illicit drug overdose in Canada um, are uh, what we consider to be occasional or recreational users. And so the majority of, of people who are dying from uh, overdose deaths in Canada are long-term um, people who use substances. And we see, uh, you know, there, there are, there's no, not really clear silos, but we definitely see, you know, those two stories. One is someone who has become um, addicted to using um, uh, substances and, and is using uh, sometimes a combination of pharmaceuticals that they get from their doctor and street drugs. It may have begun um, uh, for others with a prescription. And, and then when that prescription either uh, runs the course and the physician is unwilling to um, renew it. We have um, anecdotal evidence, um, which I confirmed with um, with the, the medical experts of people then turning to uh, the illicit drug market because they are uh, dependent on these things. And and you know some of the stories that I heard of this included from the um, BC uh, provincial mobile response team, which actually is there to help uh, firefighters, uh, ambulance drivers, police officers, and then frontline. Uh, peer support workers. These are the people who are at the front lines of the overdose uh, epidemic helping people. Even those uh, individuals, um, if they've gotten injured on the job, for example, we heard um, multiple cases of uh, of those individuals, those professional first responders, needing to return to work. They're not allowed to return to work in many of these environments if they are on a prescription for with you know major pharmaceutical drugs like like opioids. And so they have to get off those in order to earn a paycheck. Once they're finally off them, though, if they're still addicted to them, we have heard confirmed cases of, of those professional first responders even going to the very you know drug dealers who they're, um, you know, some cases, police officers responsible for arresting. So, you know, you can see, sort of see this really crosses no bounds. And so given that kind of sort of very confusing and messy situation of of not really understanding how and why people come to um, use street drugs, I had to go to the the research of, well, why do people use these substances to begin with? And I think it's important to note that our current drug laws were, were created over 100 years ago before we had any modern understanding of substance use disorder. Like literally, we had no, no idea what it was about. It was considered to be a moral failing. And uh, that was pretty much uh, uh, pretty much it. And so what we understand now today is that uh, substance use disorders, in particular, I'll talk about opioid use disorder, it's a chronic relapsing condition. What that means is you've got it for basically your life. Um, you can get into recovery, but it is always something that will be there um, with you that you need to, to manage if you are in recovery. And relapsing means that it is um, virtually inevitable that without substantial treatment and support, you will, uh, you will relapse. And, and relapses are expected even for people who are in treatment. And so how do you come to start using these um, things? Well, it's a combination of uh, genetics, a combination of uh, trauma, in particular childhood trauma. I was, you know, one of the turning points in my research was when I began to learn more about this. And um, the studies find that between seven, you're seven to 10 times more likely to develop a substance use disorder if you've experienced even moderate uh, childhood trauma in your life. And so we begin to see people who use drugs quite differently when we realize that things like Opioids are to relieve pain, and that's how people are using them. Whether it's the physical pain of being having been injured, or having uh, debilitating um, medical conditions that are just not being treated um, effectively or properly, to um, to the to the pain of intergenerational trauma. One of the most you know extreme and stark cases I heard when I asked a judge in British Columbia, you know, tell me about some of the people who are coming before your courts with the really long rap sheets. They've got multiple charges 
they're just in and out of the criminal justice system um, and they've got substance use disorders. Like, what's their background? How do they come to that point? And this judge told me, she said, well, not just one, but more than one of them, these accused persons had, um, as young, uh, young children, as toddlers, they had witnessed their own mothers being murdered and were left with the body for days. Wow. Murdered by their fathers. Okay. So you get a sense of this. And it, once you start to get into this, you stop seeing people as, you know, quote unquote addicts or junkies, which is really, you know, dehumanizing and harmful language. And you begin to see them as people who are, who are trying to cope with life. They're trying to deal with the hand they've been dealt and they're, and they, opioids gives them that temporary pain relief, but it is a, it is a devil's bargain because it gives you that temporary relief, but it then makes you dependent and, um, can take over quickly, take over your life and turn it into chaos. When we have a toxic street drug supply, it leads to your, your ultimate death. So it is a real tragic, um, situation and, um, beginning to have some care and compassion for people who use drugs is a really important starting point. And, and having that understanding, I think is really crucial as we begin to kind of talk about, well, how do you deal with this issue? Yeah, I agree. And, and that's one of the things I really liked about your book is it went into who are these quote unquote addicts. And, and, you know, it's clearly not just the people you find stereotyped in the media or by uh, people that are, let's call them the tough on drugs type of circles of people, politically speaking. Yeah. I have a quote from you here from the book, and I'd like to read it. Um, you said, I'd been struggling to understand why the response to the opioid crisis had been so muted. Why didn't more people care that thousands were dying and why weren't governments doing more about it? And then you went on to say, most people don't care about quote unquote addicts, a hurtful and stigmatizing label overdosing from illegal drugs. They believe that drug users are to blame for harming themselves by quote unquote choosing to use these dangerous illegal substances in the first place. If they overdose and die, it's their own damn fault. It's a harsh form of victim blaming that I started to notice in conversations with even some friends and family members, and it has roots in thoroughly debunked but persistent theories about why people use illicit drugs. And, and I thought that was just pretty pretty much a phenomenal chunk to pull there because it, it says a lot. And, and I think you're right that one of the roots of the problem here is that before we even talk about the substances themselves, whether they should be legal, illegal, whatever, the reasons in people's heads why people use drugs seems to be far from what the reality is. Yeah, it's a really a caricature for most people. And, you know, when you begin to get into this, uh, we began to sort of talk to people who's, um, who had lost children. And what you find is that while, while people who are poor, while people who are indigenous, while people who are recently incarcerated are disproportionately affected, absolutely, the, the number of overdose deaths in Canada, it has reached every um, strata of society. From the wealthiest families to the poorest families, from you know every um, ethnic background, every political background, you name it, it it does not discriminate. Okay, and so I've spoken to parents like this. They had no idea that their you know young daughter who was in her early twenties, for example, was uh, using drugs. And the only way they found it is one morning they went to wake her up, and she was dead. That's it. That's all it takes. And because of the stigma and shame around substance use and its criminalization, people are compelled to use alone. And that is where most people die. If you overdose from opioids and you're alone, you're at a substantial risk of, of having that overdose uh, lead, to your, uh, lead to your death. And that's why we begin with talking about um, destigmatizing, allowing people to kind of come out with their families and let them know, hey, look, this is what, I, this is what I'm dealing with. So they can get support. And, uh, uh, you know, things like we'll talk about, I'm sure, you know, places to safely use drugs like supervised consumption sites and overdose prevention sites. The only things that those interventions do 
is someone brings their drugs in, they use them. And if they literally like hit the floor unconscious, there's someone there to administer naloxone, which is the, um, the drug which reverses uh, temporarily reverses an overdose and if needed to provide them with oxygen. And if we don't have them, people overdose in back alleys or in their, in their homes or in their vehicles. And, um, and that's it. So beginning to look at this issue differently, taking away the blame, the shame, the condemnation, the, the outdated, uh, and as I said, debunked myths about why people use substances is really, really crucial. Shifting gears a little bit here, one more quick question before we get into, as you said, what we'll talk about the proposed solutions to the crisis and how we may go about that. Um, let me just ask you a question that's pretty much a chapter title in your book, and obviously I'm not asking you to read the whole book here, but maybe just at a, at a high level, can't we just stop fentanyl at its source? This is something people ask. You, you you title a chapter in your book about that. Obviously, there's some people that think we can just kick down the door of the highest drug kingpin in the in the circle right. and be and be done with it. But uh, but so so can't we just stop fentanyl at the source, Ben? Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be easy, right? Um, so I I started out looking at that question, and I government and um, have been in advisory positions really to the you know CBS, the Canada Border Services Agency, and so. You know, I thought it would be a good idea to talk to them. So I interviewed the the top um, CBSA officials in British Columbia, which is where um, most of the illicit fentanyl in, in at least Western Canada is coming through. And what they told me was that um, that you know they confirmed for me that the that the vast majority of fentanyl entering Canada is coming from China, and it is coming through um, through the through basically the mail. And um, so I asked them, okay, well, how many how many items of mail come from China to through Vancouver through the International Mail Sorting Facility every you know every every month? And the number was staggering. It's almost two million pieces of mail from China to Vancouver every month. Almost two million every month. Unbelievable. So they were they were pretty quick to admit that it's impossible to check them all. That should be obvious, but it is literally like looking for a needle in a haystack. And this is where things get really complicated and interesting. They have found fentanyl in packages as small as greeting cards. So imagine like a Mother's Day card or something, okay, just packed with, you know, a little bit of cellophane or something and it's in there and that's enough. That's enough to make it profitable. It's, it can be spread out and it's so potent that that is worthwhile for them to, to do. And so there's absolutely no way to, um, to in any way effectively stop this from entering Canada. Now, even if we did get really good at it, Fentanyl, as I mentioned, is a synthetic opioid. It can be readily manufactured anywhere in the world, including right here in Canada. So I wanted to investigate that claim too. And I, I went online and I, I spent five minutes and I found a bona fide fentanyl recipe. I confirmed it was uh, the, the real thing with a, a scientist at a United States-based national security lab who researches this issue. And he verified for me that that is the leading uh, and easiest way to make fentanyl. He also verified for me that I would only need someone with college-level chemistry experience and basic lab equipment, all of and precursors, all of which I could buy uh, online. And if the precursors get um, themselves, precursors are drugs used to make fentanyl and any other substance, um, that if those also were prohibited, I could also easily make those precursors. So it is, um, it is completely uh, false to think that we could shut down supply. The other thing that I was told by law enforcement repeatedly was that we actually have tried doing this with other drugs, other synthetic drugs, particularly methamphetamine. And at one point, Canada was, um, you know, initially an importer of meth. And at this point now, um, having gotten better at, you know, cracking down on on um, meth uh, overseas, 
what did you know the drug world under Lord Lords do here in Canada? Well, they said, well, let's make it here, right? And people are all familiar with you know things like Breaking Bad and TV shows, but it actually it actually happens. And Canada now is a global exporter of meth. So the idea that you can shut down any substance, let alone a synthetic one, is a total joke. Now, it would be bad enough if it ended there. But this is where I got to uh, some really interesting, um, uh, interesting conclusions. So globally, we have been trying to, people are familiar with the term war on drugs. Essentially, the idea is, uh, is very simply that if we crack down on supply, we will reduce the quantity of drugs that people have access to, and that will drive up their price, and that will make people use less drugs. That's the, that's the kind of idea behind the war on drugs. Uh, and we're also going to you know, crack down on people who are using. We're going to crack down on the demand, and we can talk about that later. So if we just talk about supply, we've been at this war on drugs for, for decades and decades now. Um, how well is it doing? Well, the global drug trade today is estimated to be worth um, around half a trillion dollars annually, and that's a pretty conservative uh, figure. This idea is that we're going to – it's a prohibitionist model. It's the same model used for cracking down on alcohol during prohibition in the United States. And so when we look at the data about like how well is the global war on drugs doing, and since 1990, there have been increasing um, seizures globally of heroin, cocaine, and cannabis, the th three kind of major global drugs. What it's been doing is it's been doing really, really well in terms of seizing those drugs. It looks like a huge uh, success. But what has happened on the ground when they've done studies uh, across the world, and, and the best data we've got is from the United States, that the average price of heroin during that period of increasing global drug seizures actually decreased by 81%. The price of cocaine dropped by 80%. The price of cannabis down by 86%. Well, how could that be? They're seizing more. The prices are going down. And it gets even worse from there. What turns out is that the... Um, the price adjusted, so inflationary adjusted, for example, uh, prices of, um, of those drugs, if you look at the purity of them, they're actually getting stronger. So the purity of heroin, heroin during that period from 1990 to 20, 2007, cocaine went up by 11% and cannabis went up by 161%. So if you kind of step back, you go, hang on a second, they're seizing more drugs, but they're getting cheaper and more potent. How can that be? This is where um, we basically begin to understand that as we have seized things like heroin, there has been a substantial incentive for people who traffic drugs to not have that seized. It's very costly to them when their drugs get seized. So what have they done? They have tried to reduce the bulk. So they're sending drugs that are more potent. So you remember a little while ago I said fentanyl is uh, 50 times more potent than uh, heroin. So instead of sending um, a certain quantity of heroin, you have to only send a much, much, much smaller quantity of fentanyl that you then can um, can spread out with basically what are called buffers. So if you get a greeting card of fentanyl from China, that's the equivalent of basically getting like a you know a kilogram of uh, not a kilogram, maybe a couple pounds of, of heroin. So it's a lot easier to hide a greeting card than it is um, you know having people do horrific things like you've seen in the movies and really does happen, swallowing balloons with heroin and you know getting caught entering Canada with heroin strapped to their body. That that doesn't have to happen anymore, right? That's that's a very high risk, very likely that you'll get caught, or at least higher risk you'll get caught. And so the response from the criminal underworld has been to innovate. And this is where the war on drugs really didn't get off the starting block. It assumed a static drug market. It did not expect that 
highly motivated criminals who make, you know, again, half a trillion dollars a year would just sit there and go, well, I guess you seized our drugs. We're going to pack up and go home. They don't do that. They innovate. And so their innovation was to discover fentanyl, which again, wasn't a new invention. It's been around since 1959. So as the war on drugs got really, really, really uh, ramped up and did really well in seizing things like like heroin, the criminal underworld thought, well, why are we even bothering with dealing with, um, you know, warlords in Afghanistan to get poppy? Like, let's just make this ourselves and we can do it anywhere we want in, you know, in the world. And, um, and then we'll be very uh, unlikely to get caught and we'll actually make a lot more money. So that's, that's what happened. So, you know, goodbye shipping containers of cocaine from Colombia. Hello, greeting cards from, from China fentanyl, you know, this phenomenon uh, that we're talking about isn't new. Um, we've seen it before with alcohol prohibition in the United States and with, you know, the increasing um, concentrations of alcohol. So people would, you know, have probably heard and maybe a bit familiar with the idea that, you know, rather than drinking moonshine, the beer, you turn to moonshine, right? Again, moonshine is a very highly concentrated form of alcohol, which actually led to, you know, it actually did lead to people getting blind and even dying. So you even did have a you know death epidemic of, of sorts during alcohol prohibition. So when we look at um, at, at fentanyl and what we are going through now in, in Canada, this is something which um, quite shocking to me was was predicted in in 1986. I talk about it in the book. There's a, a man named Richard Cowan who was actually a Republican uh, turned um, drug activist, and he called this the Iron Law of Prohibition. Essentially, the more intense the law enforcement, the more potent the drugs become. And when I read the full article that he wrote, it was quite remarkable. He actually predicted in 1986, so you know, three decades before the opioid crisis was declared in British Columbia and spread across Canada, he predicted that potent synthetic drugs would come to dominate the illicit drug market under prohibition and increase the risk of fatal overdoses. So he actually predicted the opioid crisis three decades before it happened. Because he knew that this is what happens when you pursue a prohibition model when you deal with a substance. So it's quite a remarkable, um, remarkable story. And, you know, I talked about data from like 1990 to 2007. Since then, we've seen an even greater ramping up. Um, you've heard of, you know, President Donald Trump in the States wanting a, a wall, building a wall across the border with Mexico in large part to deter um, not just people, but but drugs from crossing uh, the border. Um, the U.S. has gotten even better at seizing heroin. They they seized 400 percent more heroin from 2008 to 2015. And yet uh, there is the United States now with over half a million deaths from uh, opioid related overdoses. And that number is is increasing. And one more point before we go to the break, and I think it bridges over nicely to what I wanted to quickly talk about, which is you mentioned that that was a broader discussion about the, su the supply side. So on the demand side, one of the solutions to the so-called drug crisis that a lot of people talk about is, well, let's just get tougher on the demand side, right? Like if we just start going around chucking users in jail or anybody that's, you know, low level dealers and uh, and and basically people that are just, just buying their drugs off the street, then we can decrease the demand for it, right? People think this causes a disincentive to buy drugs. And on the other hand, well, the users will be in jail. But uh, cl clearly that hasn't been working either, I don't think, right? I mean, we've had decades of throwing uh, users of drugs in jails, and it doesn't seem like that's stopping uh, neither what the suppliers think is the demand and the demand itself. Yeah, and honestly, I I'm, I, I used to have a bit more time and patience for like the idea. And I even believe those views too, by the way, right? Like I, I that's the conservative party's dogma on drug policy. And right. it's um, I've actually gotten increasingly... Um, uh, annoyed at that approach. Right. And so basically, um, 
it's sort of cooked up by someone who never had any idea about even basic economics or basic um, psych- like psychology or public health. Like it, it literally was cooked up by a bunch of people who had no idea how the world works in any way, shape or form. People who use substances, the, the definition of substance use disorder is that they are going to use despite the risk of consequences, right? Right. So if people are not going to stop using drugs because um, of the risk of overdosing and dying, they're certainly not stopping because of the risk of the threat of, um, of incarceration. And so, you know, when we look at the deterrence literature, we look at the criminology literature, it categorically concludes that criminalizing drugs does not deter people. It does not stop them from using. And when we do imprison them, that costs, first of all, it costs taxpayers a ton of money. The federal correction system is worth $5 billion a year in Canada, and the vast majority of people in it have substance use disorders, and many of them, that's a huge part of their offending profile. So it's a very costly exercise. It, it, it costs around probably between, I think, I've seen a range of figures, but around $150,000 a year to incarcerate a person. Okay, So if, if you want to kind of be tough on crime, you're, you're, you're like wasting money, basically. Like you really like wasting money. And even worse, those people then come out who have substance use disorders out of prison, they actually still can get some access to drugs in jail, but not as much as before, obviously. And so their tolerance rapidly reduces. So when they uh, are released from prison, they are actually greater risk of overdosing and dying because they go back and use even a small quantity of, of the substances they used to use before and their bodies aren't used to it. And because they're often released on conditions that they not use drugs, they're going to use uh, secretly. And so then they're alone, they overdose and die. So in British Columbia, when we did a survey of every single person who had overdosed during a certain um, period of time over a year and a half period, 44% of those people had been incarcerated within the last two years. And um, the, the disproportionately, they had died within two weeks of release from jail. So our prison system isn't deterring people to, to stop using drugs. It does not rehabilitate them, nor should we be denouncing them uh, for using drugs, given what we now know about substance use disorders. So prohibition at both the societal and uh, global societal, national and personal levels has been a dismal failure. And this is the conclusion I reached after doing this research. I did not start with this conclusion. I can assure you that. You know, I used to, as you mentioned in the beginning, I used to be Prime Minister Harper's top criminal justice advisor. I was very much uh, bought into the the party ideology that, um, you know, drugs are bad, they cause crime, and so we need to squash them out. And 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 I've come to conclude that, in fact, um, people who use drugs need support. It's a medical issue. And the idea that we can somehow prosecute our way out of this, even the police are saying we can't do that. Judges are saying we can't do that. So, you know, what what's the way forward? It certainly is not the way we've been pursuing it. There is absolutely no evidence that our current model of criminalizing people who use drugs is is um, is effective. It is ineffective. It's costly and it's it's dangerous. It's killing people. And we'll leave it there for the break. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ben Perrin today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Vincent Geloso. Amy Willis, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ben Perrin today. 
Ben, so I, I think the first half of our conversation did a really good job of giving us a backdrop to discuss both a bit of the war on drugs and the opioid crisis in Canada and a bit in the st- states as well. Let's shift over to some uh, solutions and, and, and different things that have been thrown at the op- opioid crisis. We'll end up ending with what you think the ultimate solution is, and, and you can summarize that up for us. But but I'd like to take us with a few points here first. So you, you mentioned uh, naloxone in the first half of our conversation. Um I think it, this is certainly something that helps, as you mentioned, but but given what, the way you sort of started talking about in the first half, this is ultimately a, a Band-Aid solution, along with also like the, these overdose sites that people put up. This is not a long-term solution, ultimately, is, is where it sounded like you were going with that discussion. Yeah, it's like defibrillators, right? Like if we were talking about our, our concern was people dying of heart attacks, well, the first thing you do is, okay, well, they're dying right now, so how do we keep them alive, Right. Um, so naloxone is like a defibrillator, right? In any medical intervention, you have your frontline uh, immediate emergency crisis response. And so we have a sort of, we have very good understanding now of what can save lives during the op- opioid crisis. The research shows that by ramping up naloxone, by, pr- by ramping up um, supervised consumption sites, by providing evidence-based um, uh, treatments in particular, uh, providing people with um, access to um, things like Suboxone and, and other um, medications, which can actually help them to not go into withdrawal. Um, and these are things which have been found to uh, save lives. And so starting with naloxone, naloxone is interestingly also was created right around the time when uh, fentanyl was created. So they were created by two different groups of people who weren't working together in any way. And interestingly, naloxone and other, um, uh, this drug was essentially created to try to deal with some of the side effects of, of uh, taking opioids, one of which can be constipation. So it's kind of remarkable that a drug that was created for dealing with that actually um, can save lives as well. So naloxone is, um, is available widely in, in most parts of Canada now. Um, it needs to be freely available and widely available to people and, and at public and private locations. It is uh, emergency first aid on how to respond to an overdose. Um, any person can get a sort of online 10-minute training on how to use naloxone. Most pharmacies in Canada now uh, you can walk into and simply walk up and say, I would like a naloxone kit. And you usually, um, you, you're not supposed to have to give your name. Some provinces may still be asking for that. But um, to keep it as low stigma as possible, you just walk in and walk out. And so I actually I wanted to test that system. And, and I do know some people who uh, who use drugs. So I went and, and got a kit, did the training. And um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, if you've never had to give someone a, a needle before, that part is a little scary, but um, it could save their life. Right. And so we've heard stories in the media of people who have been walking around in the community, seen someone passed out, did the checks that you need to do and administered naloxone and actually saved their life. They were, in fact, overdosing. And so Anyone who who um, is a is a person who uses uh, substances or knows someone who is, um, you need to have an naloxone kit um, readily available and know how to use it. And so that's really the starting point for this is is keeping people alive. And just to emphasize, you know, we can't we can't focus only on stopping people from using drugs. Like the fact is, some people are not going to be able to stop using, and um, and those that are, those that do want to stop and are, are able to you know get into treatment and support, they can't do that if they're dead. And so our our first immediate response to a public health emergency that's taking lives uh, has to be uh, keeping people alive. 
and naloxone is the is the first uh, step in that. So let's pivot to, to safe injection sites then. I want you to talk a bit about that first to give an overview of, of what they are are what they are and what they're supposed to be doing and also the success rates. Your your book goes into the effect of safe injection sites as well, but you know ultimately I find that a lot of people um for different uh you know reasons of vested interest or political bias in my opinion uh, have varying opinions on this, but ultimately some of the most negative opinions you hear about safe injection sites is that oh we're going to have this thing set up a bunch near a bunch of housing units it's going to drive up you know homeless people and people going to these places and we're going to see lots of an increased amount of drug use uh, lots of opinions on it maybe you can help us demystify some of this so, so what is a safe injection site and and what has their success has been so far in Canada yeah so i, I think those are all like legitimate uh, questions they're all questions and concerns i had and my book really tries to be quite honest and forthcoming with that stuff. It's not trying to be preachy. I actually, you know, went through a note, my own kind of journey investigating um, questions like, you know, do supervised injection sites actually make things worse? They enable drug use. All the questions you just raised, people have these questions. They're they're legitimate questions, and uh, but the answer is to get some um, get some data, some evidence, some information about them to to make informed choices and not rely on biases, like you say, and stereotypes because that is that is not a good way to make public policy. Um, and it's a da- it's actually dangerous during a public health emergency to you know make decisions on medical interventions based on kind of op- public opinion and feelings right that's very dangerous so let's get into it so to start with um, as I alluded to before the break all that supervised consumption sites do and and overdose prevention sites which is the provincial kind of version of them is they provide people who are trained in overdose response. So we talked a minute ago about people being trained to use naloxone and administer um, um, breathing or oxygen if, if the person in fact needs that as well, which is part of a, uh, the response. So I've been to overdose prevention sites as part of my study. And essentially what you'll see there is there'll be a number of uh, booths. It's all in a big room. And, and they have uh, gloves, um, clean um, uh, syringes, uh, unused syringes, I should say. Um, and clean water and stuff like that. Um, people will then, they've brought their drugs there. Uh, some of these places actually have drug testing available now to tell you if your um, substances have fentanyl in them. And, and some of them even have really sophisticated devices that can tell you um, a bit more data about it. And then people uh, will administer their drugs uh, themselves. And then if they'll wait there for a few minutes, usually you know five or 10 minutes, maybe 15, and that is simply to see if the substances they've taken would typically, if they you know, had more or less fentanyl in them. So if there was a greater quantity of fentanyl, because you can't tell, right, because it's not mixed consistently, your drug dealer doesn't give you like a, a package that tells you that kind of information like you'd get on a, you know, health information for any other product because it's an illegal product, so, which is another part of the kind of problem here. So if you hit the ground because you've passed out, they are going to come over immediately and administer naloxone. If you're having any difficulty breathing, they're going to administer oxygen. And if necessary, they'll call 911 and get a get an ambulance and a fire truck down there to uh, to get you um, get you to hospital or revive you there on, on site. That's all they do. Uh, they also um, give you public health information. They often will treat basic medical wounds. So for populations that don't have access to uh, to, to healthcare uh, in any real uh, meaningful way. And um, many of them also offer um, referrals to treatment. So what ends up happening when you look at the data around these, Canada's first supervised consumption site, um, Insight in Vancouver, uh, people will be familiar with, the former Harper government uh, tried unsuccessfully to shut it down. The Supreme Court required it to be given um, an exemption to continue to operate. 
because in, in the unanimous view of the Supreme Court, insight saves lives and its benefits are proven. And when I looked into this for myself, that was in 2011, right? So nine years ago, we're still talking about it and we're still seeing provincial opposition in, in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Ontario by provincial conservative governments to these sites, either not funding them or curtailing them. And so when I looked into it for myself, um, what I found is there's over 100 peer-reviewed studies that actually support supervised consumption sites. They are, have a, a perfect record of saving lives, millions of visits to supervised consumption sites in Canada, uh, let alone internationally, and not a single person has ever died inside a supervised uh, consumption site. And that's because the overdose response that we have is, is very, very, very effective. Naloxone and rescue breathing works um, very, very well. It's, a, it's, it's a, a fantastic medical intervention. We know it's needed. And so that's what, what happens. Um, the other positive benefits are, I mentioned about providing people with uh, supplies. Supervised injection sites, because of that, also have been found to reduce the risk of transmission of communicable diseases like hepatitis C, uh, HIV, AIDS. They also have been found to increase um, um, referrals to treatment. And so people who regularly attended Insight, for example, were 1.7 times more likely to enter into um, uh, drug treatment, and they were more likely to complete that treatment. So if you're supportive of people getting into treatment, these sites provide a really effective way to do that. Um, the studies also show that, in fact, crime around these areas does not, uh, does not increase and that you see less public consumption of drugs because people are now going indoors. And um, all in all, a really great um, response. Now, some of the um, concerns that have been raised about supervised uh, consumption sites in certain communities, so for example, concerns about them um, you know, resulting in a group of people congregating or increasing um, uh, dispo unsafe disposal of syringes and things like that. We've really seen in Alberta how Premier Jason Kenney has made this a really big issue. He campaigned against them and then uh, had a hand-picked committee write a review, which did not look at any of the benefits I talked about. They were specifically told not to look at any of the benefits of supervised injection sites from a public health perspective, but instead look at their what he referred to as their socioeconomic impacts, essentially looking at um, you know town hall public opinion type stuff, which was in the view of many people cherry-picked. Incidentally, that report that was um, released in, in March of uh, 2020 here, there has been a call from... Um, uh, boy, oh boy, I don't know what the number is now, probably close to 100 um, leading scientists and academics calling for its retraction because of its methodological flaws and bias. So that, just to be clear, that report has been thoroughly uh, debunked and and uh, it's quite a dangerous report that others, other countries that are opposed to this have now been referring to. So what do you do when you look at this issue about local impact? Well, interestingly, in Calgary, where there was only one in the Vancouver area, uh, we're into the dozens. What that means is that people are able to access these in uh, disperser of the community. They're a, they're a basic public health intervention. They should be widely available. And when you make something more widely available, then you have uh, less of a problem of people congregating and queuing and all that kind of stuff. So the answer to concerns about local impact isn't less supervised consumption sites. It's more of them. So like everything in drug policy, um, the right answer is usually not the most obvious one. I'd, li I'd like to pivot us to what, what ultimately, and, and as your book starts to close off, is really at least, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is really what I gather to be what you view as ultimately the major s solution to all this stuff, um, which, which ultimately may be a serious discussion on decriminalization. Uh, one thing I like what you did at the end of the book is you went into the negatives of criminalization, and I can read them out here in, in a second. Maybe we could dip into one or two of those just to illustrate, but but at a high level, am I wrong in gathering that that's pretty, pretty much what you think is going to be 
I don't want to say the silver bullet, but this is this is the thing we need to be talking about in a serious way. Decriminalization uh, of, of, of drugs, obviously specifically opioids in this conversation, but, but drugs in general. This is how we're actually going to be able to, to, to treat addicts, perhaps make them better and, and also deal with all the other criminal issues. Is this is this the solution? Yeah. So the recommendations I make, I really strongly feel that, you know, you need to pursue all of them. So we've talked about a few of them already. <clears throat> Um, increasing um, access to evidence-based treatment is another huge part of this. Um, providing a safe supply is another one. So what that means is instead of people having to use these contaminated street drugs where they're at much greater risk of fatal overdose, we know they're going to use. And so instead, we need to substitute those with a safe supply. So we're not talking about legalizing drugs. We're talking about providing people who have opioid use disorder, um, having them get access to a legal regulated access. And... Um, you know, I also talk about increasing support for uh, frontline and uh, peer-based indigenous groups and that. When we get to the issue of, okay, so we have a criminal law against possessing drugs. What do we do about that? Absolutely. And I, I think we're, we're past the point of, um, uh, you know, just needing to talk about it. We need to actually do it. The consensus is really quite clear among um, not only the um, public health experts, but also most criminologists and, and other people who have investigated this issue, uh, the city of Vancouver, a number of other um, municipalities have been really hard impacted. The answer is we need to decriminalize people who use drugs. That means that we no longer would, would have a crime of possession of, of uh, drugs. We talked a bit earlier about why that is. And you mentioned that, you know, in, in the book, I talk about some of the massive problems with criminalization. I actually conclude in the book that our uh, criminalization of people who use drugs is a very likely infringement of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And um, at any rate, uh, it's very bad public policy. And when we look at countries like Portugal that have decriminalized uh, drugs, we see success. We see increasing people getting into treatment. We see um, uh, lives being saved and we see decreases in uh, communicable diseases. So it, it, I never expected when I started researching this book to be coming out supporting decriminalization. I knew I would have to tackle that question, but I never expected to be the person wearing the T-shirt now saying, you know, end the war on drugs and decriminalize them. This, this is not a place in life I expected to be. That's why it's kind of a remarkable journey and really reflects a big change of heart and mind. And that's where the evidence led me. And that's what I believe we need to do. We had uh, Trevor Burris on a previous episode and he asks a very pointed question, uh, which is basically, so why do alcoholics get treatment and why do drug addicts get cages? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, alcohol actually kills more people than opioids do, right? Alcohol is the number one uh, alcohol and tobacco um, they actually kill more people. So if we want to start talking about substances more broadly, that's an approach I support in the book. I say, you know, the reason why we're talking about opioids, though, is because they are, um, they're killing in the sort of very instantaneous way, right, that we've been talking about. And, um, you know, we've allowed people to choose to use alcohol, even though, and tobacco, even though we know it, it will kill them and it costs the healthcare system a lot. Um, what's the rationale for opioids? Well, when I looked into that, it turned out that the reason for why we criminalized opioids um, a century ago was based on racism. It was Chinese Canadians who, um, you know, when they came to Canada in large part um, being used as essentially slave labor to build the railway, once that was done very, very quickly, starting in BC, there were laws passed to try to criminalize um, uh, opioids and as a way to, as a part of a suite of discriminatory laws. It was very obvious, and I document in the book, this is not at all speculative, it's explicitly racist. And and claims of, you know, uh, morality. Uh, they were terrified of, uh, of reports of white women being found in Chinese opium dens in, in Vancouver and Victoria. And so that's really what spurred the criminalization of opioids in Canada. 
there was no medical evidence um, that it was uh, any any uh, worse than alcohol consumption. In fact, when I looked at period writings from that era, there was more of a case to uh, criminalize alcohol than there was opioids. Uh, the opioids back then were smoked; they were very low potency, and people would essentially just sort of lounge out and fall asleep. Whereas with alcohol, I mean, people people have a much better understanding of how how negatively alcohol can lead to you know violence and things like that. And so it's kind of an interesting story. Um, essentially, there was never any medical or public safety argument for criminalizing opioids, uh, nor is there one today. And, and I'll just read something here from your book, your book too. Uh, it says, my investigation revealed at least seven fatal flaws with criminalizing people who use drugs. Together, they convinced me that as part of a new approach, we need to immediately repeal simple possession of illicit drugs as criminal offense. And here's the headings, basically, of, of the seven fatal flaws. And we definitely encourage people to, to get your book and read a bit more into those. You listed punishing people for having substance use disorders, fueling stigma, endangering health and lives, isolating people who use drugs from support, fostering other criminal and risky behaviors, increasing the risk of overdose death upon release from prison, and raising barriers to rehabilitation. And as I said, you, you go into these in more detail in the book. And if and if these are the, as you termed it, fatal flaws of criminalization of drugs, those are pretty serious fatal flaws to pardon the redundancy i mean again this isn't this isn't helping so i think as you said we're we're definitely past the point where we got to be talking about this and actually looking looking into some action on this front and i should note and maybe you could talk a bit about this too people tend to think that this word decriminalization when it comes to the the, the scary old drugs is, is going to be something like like chaos and, and anarchy if you will on the streets where everyone's chucking cocaine at four-year-olds or something but but in reality look at what we do with alcohol i'm not saying i'm in favor of the lcbo and ontario but 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 it does exist like like there is some sort of control and regulation of alcohol as a substance it's not as if that can't be intelligently discussed with all kinds of drugs. Yeah, so there's a couple models. Like one is our prohibition model, which we've, which no one really can meaningfully support if right. they look into this. Um, then you've got, you know, what the other extreme end is legalization, which would be like with alcohol, which would allow anyone who's of age to purchase um, uh, any uh, substance they would want. I had a number of people who support that. I think there is something possibly there, but it's not ultimately where I come down in the book. Um, I do think that that needs a lot more um, thought, and I'm concerned about that. Uh, at this point, but open to, you know, kind of seeing where it goes. Where where I do think we need to go, though, right now is this model of decriminalization. And so the way that's different, again, is if we did this tomorrow, it would simply mean that it was no longer a crime to possess any drug. That would be it. Okay, first for simple possession. That's the only thing that changes with with decriminalization. And I talked about other ways that we need to to, you know, have that flow through the criminal justice system. We then need to combine this with what I call and others call now a safe supply. So rather than everyone and anyone being able to get cocaine and heroin, which I'm not supportive of at this point, instead, it's people who are already addicted to those substances. We substitute what they are going to use, which is the street drug. Instead of that, they're going to get a safe supply. They don't actually have to literally walk in and trade it out. That's just, you know, kind of notionally what we're talking about, though. So, for example, in Vancouver right now, there's something called Knife Safe Supply. It's a biometric vending machine. People are previously viewed, um, uh, assessed by a medical, um, uh, by a physician. They are then given a prescription for, um, for opioids, just like any of us would be if we came out of surgery. Okay, um, I was offered opioids recently for a medical procedure, or medical uh, issue I was dealing with, and I declined them. They were offered to me. If I took them, they would be sitting in my medicine cabinet, you know, secure somewhere. Um, this doctor does that for people to treat them for their substance use disorders. And, and it is, a again, a biometric vending machine. They come in and they get their um, their dose, they take it, and they don't overdose and die. 
they're able to um, go about their lives. They're not uh, consumed by um, the, the fatal, uh, sorry, the devastating uh, effects of withdrawal. And they're no longer um, doing risky behaviors, for example, um, to secure funds to purchase these drugs from drug dealers. So we've had a number of studies where the safe supply model has been tested. Um, the Naomi and Salome studies in Vancouver, they were found to decrease um, involvement in crime, decrease money spent on drugs, and increase the ability of people to um, get vocational training and jobs. And when I talk to judges and defense lawyers, they said that clients of theirs accused they knew through those programs just stopped showing up in the criminal justice system one day. They just weren't there anymore because their lives had stabilized. And this is really the remarkable thing. It is not the substances that cause people to do crime. That is a real mistake to think that. That's what I believed. It is the fact that they are criminal that causes people to engage in crime. You're paying monopoly prices for a substance which is dangerous, and it's, again, run by the criminal underworld. So by taking this out of the shadows in all its ways and forms, by acknowledging people use substances for many reasons, they don't need our blame and judgment, they need our understanding and compassion and support, by giving them clean, uh, uh, a safe supply, and um, uh, uh, medical uh, supervision, they're able to then um, stay alive, get into treatment one day if that's what they're interested in doing, and move on with their lives. And, and we can end this wasteful and costly century-long experiment with prohibition. So we know what we need to do, um, but the real roadblock here is, is political will. And that's where I hope my book will contribute to the national debate on how do we deal with, with uh, substances in our society. And one more quick point, Ben, before we wrap up. At, at the close of your book, you ultimately get into as well, this is one thing I really liked, in, into what the average person can do to understand and contribute to solving the crisis. That kind of sounds sometimes counterintuitive. People may think like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm just one person. I just, you know, I read the news every day. I see these terrible things. I may feel for it, but but what can I actually do? Ultimately, a, a lot of what you said towards the end of that book, at, at least to me, came down to like, at the very least, you can start by by informing yourself. Maybe maybe yeah. have a quick minute on what what you meant by these sort of topics at the end of the book, but but that that really spoke to me. I like that. It's like you can't have opinions or make decisions or even contribute to politics unless you're at least informed first. Yeah, I, I believe that that needs to extend from not just elected officials, but their advisors as well as voters. And 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 once we get informed about bad policies that are wasting money and costing lives, we just need to stop accepting them. So you know, the next time that a party that you support comes out sort of demonizing drug users or or um, opposing things like life-saving supervised injection sites, call them up and say, look, I, I don't support you for, I don't support the position you're taking. Like, I, I think you're wrong. And I, you know, I really need you to re, re, reconsider this because ultimately politicians are, are, we're their bosses. <laughs> they answer to us. Right. And unfortunately, they, they follow polls and they know that people are scared of drugs and um, fear wins votes and we need to move past that. So yeah, get informed, tell someone, um, show your support for a compassionate drug policy. I think that people who who um, begin to show understanding and compassion, you're going to find that, as I did actually, there are people who you know who use drugs, but they're terrified to tell you because they're afraid of what you will say and how you will judge and blame them. And so you're actually you know, living a fantasy world if you think that there are not people in your immediate life who are using substances or having challenges with them. And since I started on this journey, I have had multiple people um, uh, uh, come and tell me that. And I'm, I'm really honored that they would share about the struggles that they're having. But your family members, your loved ones, your extended family, your friends, you know, former you know, college buddies, whatever, there are people you know who are using drugs and, and, and need your uh, understanding. So those are just a few things. Um, but I, I really do believe speaking up and 
you know, doing things like donating your time and money is, is really important and look at your own circle of influence and, and how you could, um, could make a contribution. So yeah, I would just encourage people to, to take a look at, uh, at the book and, um, and really just to think about for themselves in their own life, how can, how can they be part of the solution? Because, you know, we all have a role to play in this. This is an issue that affects so many millions of Canadians and how many more people need to die before we pay attention to it? So our, our time is completely up here. We've talked about a lot. Every episode, I like to bring it full circle, though, to put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what the solution to the opioid crisis is? We've talked about a lot. If someone were to just listen to this last 30 seconds here of you, what, what do you really want them to remember? I think we need to have compassion and understanding for people who use substances. Um, we need to use the best available evidence to respond to this public health emergency and dump a century of wasteful and ineffective policies. We need to end the criminalization of people who use drugs and provide them with a safe supply and offer them the chance of hope. I think we'll leave it there then. Ben, thank you so much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.